Hi, this is Danielle Krissa from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 160 of Art for Your Ear. Okay, first things first, let's thank the people that helped make this episode possible, the fabulous women at Thrive Art Studio. I joined Thrive's Masterbind program about three years ago, and it has been a game changer for my personal artwork. Here's the lowdown. Thrive supports female, genderqueer, and gender non-binary visual artists by providing the community and accountability that will help them achieve their creative goals. Members sign up for the Mastermind program for a year and meet monthly online with an intimate group of other artists to talk about the ups and downs of being an artist, setting our goals, and then yes, kicking some ass. Thrive's motto is, make art, meet your people, and do the work. Learn more at thriveartstudio.com and follow them on Instagram at thriveartstudio. My fabulous co-host today is Esther Pearl Watson. Esther is a Los Angeles-based artist, and she also teaches at Art Center in Pasadena. She's basically a modern-day Grandma Moses, if Grandma Moses painted narrative scenes of a slightly dysfunctional childhood in rural Texas. (laughs) I loved Esther's work for years before I ever met her. Let's face it, she had me at Pink UFO. Needless to say, I was very intimidated by the idea of Esther Pearl. Watson. From everything that I had seen online, she oozed creativity. From art shows filled with her narrative paintings, to the zines and comic books that she seemed to constantly, and from where I was standing, effortlessly produce. Yes, I was totally intimidated. Anyway, skip ahead to 2015 or so. I was in New York, and so was my new friend, Martha Rich. Yep, the same Martha Rich who was on the podcast last week. Martha had invited me to a pre-American illustration magazine party party at an art field apartment in New York. I walked down a narrow hallway, and the first person we bumped into was a lovely woman about my age, wearing a red floral dress and a pair of cowboy boots. Hi, she said. I'm Esther. Holy crap. It was the Esther Pearl Watson. Okay, now now we need like a little rewind tape sound effect here. Like, okay. So before I started The Jealous Curator... Way back in early 2009, I read The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I've mentioned this book meets 12-week course before, but if you aren't familiar with it, go check it out. It is super intense, but for me, it really helped me get, get on the path that I had so desperately been searching for. One of the tasks that you have to complete each week is to take yourself on an artist date. This could be anything. You could go to a gallery that you've been wanting to check out or to an art supply store simply to drool over all of the colors. My son Charlie was only two when I decided to take this on, so I used my artist dates for things that were not easy to do with a toddler on your hip. I went to a vintage button shop, which almost made me cry because it was so full of fabulousness. I sat by the ocean and just sketched and I'd go into little bookshops where i just wander around and daydream about writing a kid's book one day. I also pushed myself to do things that terrified me. Now, you might be thinking, terrifying things? What the hell did you do? Go skydiving? Swim with sharks? Well, yeah, basically. Get this. I went to a gallery opening and forced myself to talk to three people. Yes, scary. Ooh, and I went to cafes in artsy neighborhoods to drink coffee and write in my notebook. See? Terrifying. Here's the thing. At any moment, anyone could have discovered that I was just an at-home mom from the suburbs, pretending to be an artist. 
Actually, one of the bits of insight I wrote down in that imposter notebook of mine said, buy vintage dresses. <laughs> I guess I figured that that would be my best disguise. Turns out vintage dresses don't look very good on me, so that plan was out the window pretty quickly. Anyway, every Saturday, I'd spend two to three hours doing something that made me feel like I was at least attempting to take a step toward becoming an artist. I won't name names, but there was one gallery that I'd been into a couple of times. The guy who worked there, let's call him Mark, was clearly an artist. I could tell by his vintage polyester shirt, his full sleeve of beautiful tattoos, and his curly mustache. You, you know, the kind that requires wax. To me, he represented every mean art kid I'd come across during my BFA. So obviously, without even talking to him, I could be absolutely confident that he was a complete asshole. Yeah, at this stage, I had some serious art school baggage. <laughs> Anywho, I had never said more than hello to this guy because being in this gallery was already pushing me way out of my comfort zone. And then one fateful day, he walked right up to me and said, so are you an artist? Holy shit, I was about to be exposed. <laughs> Why hadn't I bought all of those vintage dresses? I'd been wanting to practice saying, yes, I'm an artist. But now the moment was actually here, and I was pretty sure I was going to throw up. But I took a deep breath and calmly said, yes. That little three-letter word led to an hour-long conversation with Mark, and he was amazing. He was an artist. But he was also kind, humble, a little bit insecure, funny, and not at all judgmental. He was just a person. A person who loved making things. Just like me. Whoa. <laughs> After that day, I made a conscious effort to talk to people who looked like artists. I went back to that cool coffee shop on that artsy street and purposely made small talk with people who were sketching or had paint on their jeans. And guess what? They were all... Wait for it. Nice. Not only were they nice, but some of them even ended up telling me that they felt like imposters. Huh? I started the Jaws Curator about six months after finishing The Artist's Way, and these artists are just people moments started coming fast and furious. Everything I had convinced myself of, that real artists were mean, that I wasn't a legit artist, that I had to look or act a certain way to have the life that I wanted to have, it was all a bunch of BS. Just scary stories that I'd been telling myself for a really long time. With every post that I wrote and every artist that I met in person, these self-manufactured myths began to fade. This podcast, all 160 episodes, is also cold hard proof that artists are just people who make things because they can't not. Okay, sure, you will run into the occasional asshole, but every profession can say that. I mean, there must be accountants out there who think they're too cool for school. Anyway, the moral of this story is even if you're intimidated by a situation, if you're feeling like a fraud or an imposter, or if you come face to face with the Esther Pearl Watson at a crowded party in New York, chances are it's going to be okay. Esther is a very talented, very accomplished artist, and she's also just a person. A person who has bills to pay, a family to take care of, and who makes stuff because she can't not. Just like me, and just like you. And hey, if you keep an open mind and put yourself out there whenever the opportunity presents itself, you might even end up making some very good friends. Good friends who agree to co-host a podcast episode with you all about storytelling. You see that smooth transition? 
Yep, it is officially story time with Esther Pearl Watson. Esther told me once that she often reads stories from art history to her students while they're painting, so I've asked her to bring those weird stories over here for us. I cannot wait to hear them, so let's do exactly that. Hi, Esther. Hi, Danielle. (laughs) We have been trying to make this happen for a few weeks now, and I keep canceling, and now we're here, and it's going to be great. Good. Are you ready? Um, so the first thing I want to do is, well, we actually got to catch up in person. I just said this to Martha the other day too, because I got to hang out with you guys in Joshua Tree. Um, so I kind of know the things that you're up to, but um, we will fill in all the listeners on things you've been doing. And then because you are such a narrative um, painter yourself, you are going to tell me some cool stories from art history because that's what you do with your students at Art Center sometimes, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what have you been up to lately? Well, um, I have been working on a series of paintings that are about to be exhibited at Art Basel, Miami. Woohoo! Yay! This Thursday, I'm going to fly out there and they're going to be um, at booth H11 at Suzanne Velmetter's gallery. Okay, H11, got it. And I'm very excited to go see a lot of art in all the different um, satellite shows and main show and just seeing, you kind of get the feel of the pulse of what's going on. Yeah. The- Are yes. you guys in the main one or where where's her booth? Yeah, it's in the main one. Oh, and, that's uh, exciting. Very exciting, yeah. Have you been to uh, Art Miami before? Yeah, we went years ago, uh, and we were part of, like, the Urban Street Culture group, and, you know, we uh, painted all of our bicycles and rode them around, and uh, that's when people were painting on, like, Toyota Scions. And- <laughs> that's cool. And, but this, oh, this is going to be quite crazy. So how many pieces are you putting in? Uh, let's see. I have a bunch of pieces. I have three larger pieces, and um, I do have... A series of smaller, like um, more intimate size, like eight by ten, oh. and then some drawings on paper. So exciting! Oh my gosh, I wish I, I wish I was going this year. There's so much. Um, well, every year I think that about Miami, but I don't know. There's so many people I know that are there this year, and really cool things happening. And yeah, you'll have such a good time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, two days is enough. Yeah. <laughs> How do you handle humidity? Uh, I'm used to that from Texas. Okay. I just art fatigue. That's the hard part. It's like looking at so much art and my eyes hurt by the end of the day. Yeah, it's sort of you can't yeah, you can't take in any more. Your brain is just saturated. Yeah. It's a good kind of saturation though. So are you just going by yourself or is Mark going with you or Mark's going with me this time. So nice. Be- what about Lily? Lily is staying home because she now has a job at a coffee shop. <laughs> That's right. Oh, poor Lily. Um, I'm going to put, see, now I purposely brought her up so that I can put links to her Instagram and stuff in this post because if anybody listening doesn't know, Esther is married to Mark Todd, who's an amazing artist and illustrator and now gallery owner in Joshua Tree. <clears throat> yeah, and gallery. Lily is your daughter. How old is she? Is she just turned 19 when I was there? 19, that's right. And she is just 
such an amazing artist and I cannot, I mean, she already does amazing work. I can't even imagine what she's going to be doing in five years and 10 years. So there's my Lily plug. We always have to have a Lily plug. <clears throat> and so how much are you teaching this year? How are, how are you fitting that in? <laughs> I know, right? I teach uh, usually about three classes each semester and, um, yeah, I, I, we're about done. We have the last two weeks uh, of the semester coming up. So. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. It's December. Yeah. So what, the, what classes are you teaching this year? Um, I am teaching Image and Idea and then also a Design Matters Image and Idea with the artist Eric Nyquist. Oh. He's a illustrator and um, drafts person. And then um, I'm also teaching uh, Illustration for Publishing with Mark Todd. Oh, nice. Um, what's the first one about? Image and... Idea. Yeah, so it, what what is that about? Okay, it's kind of like a sophomore level class, and this is when they have taken their foundation year of skill building, and now they're starting to uh, mix in concepts with some of the skill that they've developed and um, trying to really visually articulate um, what they want to say and what they want to put out into the world. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My school was missing the, the skill part. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) we just jumped right into concept and I was like, I don't even know what's happening here. I don't even know how to do half this stuff. And then I think other places are so skill-based that you don't get to figure out how to do the concept. So that's such a good class. Yeah, you need a little of both. You do. You need a little of both. Um, and then so I know this is this came up last, well, two times ago that you were on the podcast, which was years ago now. And you were talking about the fact that you, very often when your students, I, thought, I think it was a painting class, wasn't it, that you would read to them like historical art history stories while they were painting or drawing? Yeah, so um, I was painting, I mean, teaching for a while, uh, composition and painting, which is, um, that is a skill building class. And um, a lot of the students, this was like a first term class, one of their first classes, maybe a second term class. Uh, They had just started art school and they were becoming familiar with um, developing the skill of painting, but also um, some of the... um, uh, painters in art history. They were still learning the names of painters and um, a lot of them, you know, like they have an Instagram list of art that they follow and it's very particular to, you know, what their interests are. So a lot of them weren't very familiar with some of the painters from art history. And I, I kind of felt like you kind of have to know um some of the some of the painters and, and how they pushed boundaries uh, within art history uh, so that you kind of know where to push boundaries now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I would do is while they were painting, I would uh, read to them or tell them something, some interesting factoid about a painter and uh, that I thought maybe would be relatable to what they were working on. And then um Hopefully, uh, they would go and look up that artist a little bit more and dig a little deeper. Um, I just wanted to, like, just plant the seed of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Did it work? I think so. <laughs> I think people took my other classes, so. <laughs> <laughs> that would have totally worked with me. My favorite part of, because I minored in art history, and so I learned about lots of it, but I had this one prof who was, 
And, you know, a lot of them were quite dry and, you know, they just sort of like it was the info from the textbook and that was it. But this one guy knew all of these stories like these, you know, that made these famous, you know, painter with a capital P just made them into people. Yeah. And would tell these stories of, you know, infidelity or like fights they got into with other artists or, you know, and just made, like who they hung out with, who they played tennis with, you know, whatever. And it was, it just made me real think like, oh, they were just people and I'm just a person. So maybe I could be a great in a, you know, in an art history textbook one day. And um, I also like gossip. I think that's really what yeah. it is. Yeah, that's that's exactly like how I I would um, kind of frame the different artists was this is kind of an interesting story that about this artist you may not know about and that might get them to look up their work a little bit closer and then and then read about them a little bit. I think the artists are so fascinating and it makes a lot of sense why they do what they do when you get to know kind of the time period they lived in and um you know, the style that they're painting and, you know, why they're using certain art supplies they're using or colors they're using it. It starts to make a lot of sense when you get to know them. Yeah. And I think that's what, um, I've noticed like with curating shows or, um, whatever is that you notice that people, the buyers want to know the story, like, you know, like they'll love the look of the work, but then when they hear the story, now they've got a story to pass on, you know, when that piece is in their home, it's not just, oh, isn't this pretty? It's like, but listen to this, and this is why. And, um, I mean, that's exactly your work, right? Like, your UFOs and everything. It, yeah. It's about your dad. And the, can you tell that story just in case people don't know? So I, I do a lot of narrative-based paintings that I call memory paintings, kind of like how Grandma Moses painted the good old days on the farm. <laughs> I'm remembering like kind of the crappy days growing up in Texas with my dad who built flying saucers in the front yard that were so embarrassing, but he felt like he was developing a future of transportation and everybody would get it in the future. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I just love that. Well, I, I mean, I just love that you've taken this sort of crazy part of your childhood that you could just go, you know what? I don't want to think about that anymore. (laughs) And you're retelling these stories. It's kind of like you're, you're, you're getting your superpowers from these stories. Right. It's like, it's almost like reclaiming or reowning, um, your own past or history. And, um, you know, some, some people may see it as like, uh, a negative, but I see it as a positive. Like this is, this is the story that I have earned and I get to tell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that's what's so neat because I, I mean, I, I thought your work was so cool and whimsical and fun when I saw it in the first place because, you know, pink UFOs or like silver, I mean, it's just random dinosaur statues. Like it's just pure gold to begin with. But then when you actually hear your full story, which is the whole point of what I want our episode to be about today is sort of um, mining those stories so that the work makes even more sense. And um I, you're in my big important art book in the narrative section because I think you are such a good storyteller um, through your work. You know, you you take these stories and you just like Grandma Moses, except not the good old days, sort of slightly more dysfunctional days, and reclaim them and retell these stories. And I think there's so much power in that, whether people do narrative work or not, um, like you know, actually like showing a scene. But um, 
I, I, the way I look at my work, which is abstract collage, basically every single one has a story behind it, Mm. you know, and if people knew what was going on in my life when I did that, it would completely make sense. So I just think that's really interesting. And for people to think about that when they're making work, like, you know, what is the story that you would want in the art history book, (laughs) you know, about the, the body of work that you're doing right now? Is it funny and weird or like, you know, is it sad? Is it, you know, what, what is it? I just think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Okay. So what, what stories have you brought me today, Esther? Well, good. I have um, some interesting stories about color to start off with, uh, because what I found was painting is a lot about color. Um, We now can go to uh, the art supply store and randomly select whatever color we want without having to think about it um, and then make an image. Or we can use our computer and then we can go uh, to a color palette and just randomly select whatever color and we don't have to think about it. But um, color uh, making was a lot more difficult in the early days. And one of my favorite uh, stories about color is the color Tyrian purple. Um, And it was uh, a color that started all the way back uh, to Cleopatra. My favorite story is involves Cleopatra and Tyrian purple. (laughs) And color was a very difficult um, color to make. You had to basically take 10,000 sea snails, uh, the snail and you had to squeeze this mucus membrane that when it was exposed to the air would turn purple but the binder was urine human urine so stick to the cloth so you can imagine now this was just to to dye one toga (laughs) you had to use ten thousand of these shells uh these little snails and she cleopatra was so ostentatious that she wanted all her sails dyed this Tyrian purple. Um, so um, she dyed the sails, she dyed the coverings for her dining couches purple. And uh, Mark Anthony said that he could smell her a mile before her ships arrived. <laughs> oh, sure. oh, no, the, thing, <laughs> the thing is... This purple, it, it's a really beautiful color, and you can go to museums and look for things that are dyed this this Tyrian purple, or sometimes you can find mosaics that are uh, have they show somebody they depict someone wearing a purple toga, um, but um, as you can imagine, it probably smelled pretty strong, uh, and Cleopatra was also famous for wearing a really potent perfume. Probably to cover up the urine smell. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'd heard that you wore really strong perfume. Now we know why. If you, if, you smell, if you smell like snail mucus and pee, get yourself some good perfume. You need some perfume. And it was made from, a, it was like this really sticky resin that was made from a tree that was native to the Horn of Africa. And a lot of ingredients that we can find in, on our kitchen shelf like olive oil and cinnamon and saffron and cardamom. So uh, it was like really sticky and um, yeah, it was not easy to wash off. So she would even soaked her sails in this perfume. So they were purple and they uh, smelled maybe like a pie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Cleo. 
Oh, that's crazy. Well, um, when I was when I knew that you were coming on, I was like, oh, should I be organized like Esther and, and like look up some stories? I did not. But um, I did find one little tidbit, which is also pee related. Would you like to hear it? I love that. Okay. <laughs> this is taking a turn I didn't expect, but you know, we're going to go with it. Um, so, um, Klimt, Gustav yeah. Klimt, did you know about this? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he was a big cat lover. He was like the cat lady of his day. Had lots and lots of cats. Loved them very, very much. Um, and apparently, he believed that um, cat urine was the best way to um, fix his drawings. Oh, um, he was wrong. <laughs> and it degraded most of his work. Oh, because <laughs> the acid just burned right through it. So his stuff smelled like pee, and it ruined the work. Uh, so d- don't do that. I hope don't people didn't that. listen to the beginning of that and then stop listening. And now they're like, "Oh yeah, I'll use cat pee." No, don't <laughs> use cat pee. It's so maybe yeah. the kiss, yeah. not kiss like Gene Simmons, but you know, the kiss, maybe it's covered in cat pee. I don't know. There might be some cat pee on that painting. Yeah. 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 We'll have to look that up. Yeah. That's I all I have for pee stories for you. I feel like art history does have a lot of pee stories. There's, there's quite a few, but um, yeah, maybe your, your listeners could research a few more but See, I we've, know. we've made them curious now well, there you go <laughs> they can yep. google urine art history and see what comes up yes oh, dear God. okay yes. what have you got next i do have um one other color story which i think is really really interesting um uh van gogh so when van gogh was uh painting Uh, He obviously could not run to an art supply store. So there would be these color men who were kind of like salesmen that would come to you and they would show you these new colors that were invented. And of course, uh, during Van Gogh's time, there was uh, these wonderful little tubes that you could put paint in so you could go outside and paint, uh, you know, on plein air. And um, there was a famous color man, Julian uh, Tengue. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm saying his name totally wrong, uh, but he would always uh, show up and show Van Gogh uh, some different colors, and, and Van Gogh often took the colors on credit or would uh, do trades, um, but um, and of course uh, that would uh, get um, the colorist in trouble. But he, uh, it, it really changed Van Gogh's palette when he would get these really vibrant colors and he would experiment with like reds against greens or oranges against blues. But uh, one of my favorite stories about uh, Van Gogh and color is that um, in the Washington Washington National Gallery of Art. There is a painting that for years was titled The White Roses by Van Gogh. And it was only until the 1990s that they realized that these weren't originally white roses. They were pink. They were supposed to be pink roses. But some of this new uh, paint that the salesman had sold to Van Gogh was fugitive. And (laughs) And so, like, all the red pigment disappeared over the years. And so what we look at and see is not what Van Gogh painted. Wow, um, that is cool. Yeah. And that so, one's in Washington. 
Yeah, that's in Washington. So uh, the lesson there is uh, make sure your art supplies are archival. Yeah. <laughs> So you don't sell something to somebody and they come back to you and they're like, hey, all the line work disappeared. Yeah. Well, you could just, you know, cut your ear off and hopefully you're dead by the time they come back around to check in with you. That's crazy. I was, I wonder if that's where his like crazy bright sunflowers and stuff came from. I know. If Julian, was it Julian? Uh, yeah, Julian. Yeah. And, and, and let me spell this for you because I'm saying it completely wrong. I do not speak French. J-U-L-I-E-N, and his last name is T-A-N-G-U-Y. Okay. Tingy. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so I wonder, yeah, Julian. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he showed up with a whole bunch of yellow one day, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to paint some sunflowers. He's like, look at this yellow. And Bingo's probably like, woohoo. I want a lot of that. And that makes sense too with those some of those pieces that are like red on green and like crazy combinations. I guess it'd be like being a kid in a candy store because you know what it's like now to go to an art store and it's like, ooh, yeah. so many colors. Well, if a dude yeah. shows up at your door with a suitcase full of stuff, it would be hard not to. I know. You're like, I'll take all of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there was a story too, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I remember this was one of the stories that the um, prof told us, so... I'm doing this through a 25-year filter, so I'm probably getting it wrong. But um, I really loved Monet, and he told us all these scandalous stories about Monet. But he had said that um, his vision had started to go. Do you know this thing about Monet? And he was, he was starting to see everything with, like, a yellow kind of haze over his vision. Interesting. So he started painting everything because he was painting what he saw. And, and so there's like this chunk of time where his paintings all sort of have this yellowish hue. Um, and then he realized, oh, it was because he had cataracts or something. So he was sort of seeing everything through this like clouded whatever. So then he got something done. I don't know if he had glasses or he, I don't know. He did something and then saw everything with a bluish hue. Oh, wow. And he started ordering buckets and buckets of blue. And so the work in his later years has like a generally sort of blue feeling to it. And it's because that's how he was actually seeing the world. Yeah, that's really, that's pretty interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that story before, but um, I do know that there were a lot of artists whose vision changed over their lifetime and uh, it did affect their work in different ways. I know uh, Mary Cassatt also had cataracts later in life. Uh, but that's also another really interesting thing to research um, because especially if you're trying to paint uh, the world as you perceive it, um, it really is interesting uh, that we can perceive the world very differently, you know, based on our vision or, you know, even as we age and our vision changes. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's just as valid no matter at the beginning of your life if you're painting, you know, the world as you see it one way and then you know, later in life is the world as you see it another way. I think those are really interesting. Me too. Yeah. I actually just wrote about a guy, uh, and I'm going to blank on his name, and I'm so sorry. I think I want to say it's Mark Liam Smith. I hope that's right. Um, I should just edit it in the right thing so I sound super, like, tight with my memory. But um, he's colorblind. Mm. And so he paints these really beautiful sort of, like, Dutch vanitas kind of um, like flowers and stuff like that. But the palette is all a little bit off. 
And so it just seems like, oh, that's cool. Somebody like put a modern spin on it. But it, that's, it's because that's how he sees the world. And so instead of his artist statement's really neat because he's like, instead of seeing this as a weakness, like, oh gosh, I'm a painter and I can't see color properly. He's just like, okay, well, he just embraces the way he sees it. And then it's his own special touch to the work because only he sees the world like that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that I think cool? That's yeah. Yeah. Greg's colorblind. My husband's color red, green, colorblind. Yeah. And I always tease him because he, <laughs> it didn't take very long into dating to realize that like he was not seeing the world that the way I was seeing the world. And I was like, I wonder what the world looks like to you. Mm-hmm. Cause you don't know any different. That's just the way you've always seen things. Yeah. My granddad uh, was red, green, colorblind. And he made me a dollhouse one time that was painted gray. <laughs> Um, as a little kid, I was like, well, that's a very, that's a a really neat color. Uh, why did you paint it that color? And he's like, what pink? And I was like, oh, you see this as pink and I see it as gray, but I know that you meant it to be pink. So I, I know it's not a gray dollhouse. It's somehow supposed to be a pink dollhouse, even though it's actually gray the way I see it. (laughs) Well, and you know what? Maybe you're wrong. That's true. That's what yeah. I thought. I kind of kept an open mind. Like he's seeing this a very different color. We can yeah. both look at that dollhouse and see two different colors. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with Greg and I. We were um, at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and we were looking out the windows across the street. And there's all these historical homes that are all painted pretty colors. And there was one that had like light pink trim. And I said, "Ooh, I love the trim on that house. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's a really neat shade of gray. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I always think about that too when I see things that are gray or brown that I wonder, you know, like as human beings, we see our color spectrum is so limited, especially compared to butterflies. Yeah. Even some types of shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep thinking like, wow, you know, maybe this this brown grass is actually really colorful, but I can't see it. To me, it just looks like dead brown grass. But yeah. Yeah. Like if you, because if, there's special glasses now that you can get, like I could put on a pair of glasses that would show me what Greg sees. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You can look at it online and there's like, it'll show you there's like different spectrum things. So it can, so maybe there's shrimp glasses. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then, I mean, yeah, and then you wouldn't have to water your garden because you'd be like, it looks great. It looks, it's so colorful. It's so colorful. It's not dried out and brown. It's looking fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, shrimp glasses. Okay, we have time for a couple more stories. Keep going. Okay. All right. Um, right now, I am very much fascinated by Cezanne's bathers. Okay. Uh, so... Cezanne uh, painted, out of like a hundred different paintings he did, um, he painted only 80 bathers. Um, He did some portraits and um, still lifes and a lot of landscapes, but only 80 bathers. And um, I had had heard a story that I, I looked up a little bit more that uh, there was a, uh, a big, like a pioneer art dealer named Ambroise Villard, um, who had a gallery, had a small gallery, and he decided he was going to show some of Van, uh, uh, Cezanne's bathers. And he put one of the small bathers in his window, and people were horrified. They just thought, 
that the women were painted so ugly and that it was offensive to women in general to look at these um, weird misshapen forms and they had strange alienated poses. And if you looked close at their faces, um, their expressions were distorted or like half painted uh, or sometimes they even looked mask-like. They had weird angular bodies that sometimes conflated with the background, like they blend in with the sky or the tree or like half, or even sometimes the water. Um, They would be turned away and not even facing the viewer. Uh, And people were so horrified. I had read somewhere that they threw things at the gallery window and, and, and would shout insults. Uh, that the gallery owner had to like cover it with a curtain. Um, but so, I know, yeah, that, that those paintings were so ugly, they had to cover it with a curtain. And I always thought about that, like, how do you make a work of art that's so ugly? <laughs> Somebody has to like cover it. Um, and passersby are, are cursing and throwing things. Throwing things. Like they just, they feel so moved to throw things. Um, at this, <laughs> this piece, but um, uh, I, I, I don't know. There's, there's something about it that, that I'm looking at that I really like what he's doing. And he kind of painted the same, the, it's very similar images over and over there. Like, there's always a bather who's holding a towel and she's holding it really awkward. Like she's, she's not really drying herself. Or there's another one who looks like she's supposed to be drying her hair uh, but you can't really tell what she's doing with her hair. Uh, but but there there's like certain poses uh, that uh, that reappear in some of the paintings. And actually, I had found this book that in the back of the book they have a glossary of figures. It's called Paul Cezanne, uh, The Bathers by Mary Louise uh, Crumrier. I'll I'll write these out for you. Okay, yeah, and I'll put them all in the post so people can find them easily. Yeah. But um, she just kind of roughly sketches the typical poses and motifs, and then she gives them names, um, which are really great because they're kind of like really blobby. They're very blobby, and you can't really tell what that you know what's going on, except it's got a butt crack, and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, uh, that that one's called seated, seen from rear, or. In the water, scene from rear. Uh, but some of, some of them. I would have blob- called it. I would have called it blobby butt crack. Blobby butt crack. <laughs> the squatter. <laughs> Is that one of them? Yeah, the squatter that appears often, and it just kind of looks like this blobby shape, and it's called the squatter. Uh, stands, arms akimbo, and. Um, <laughs> Lily was really fascinated by this categorization of these different, you know, uh, poses and motifs that were reoccurring in the bathers. And she, um, she just did her own series of, of like these figurines that were doing different things and gave them names like, uh, uh, person painting in the nude. (laughs) (laughs) From the rear. From the rear. <laughs> I, really, I thought that was interesting. Another interesting thing um, was that uh, he, he actually, I, there were a lot of artists who were super inspired. Uh, maybe the public didn't get uh, his work and thought it was ugly, but a lot of artists thought what he was doing uh, 
was kind of questioning the standards of beauty. And, and when they would ask him, you know, like, did you use a model for this? He would never give a clear answer. (laughs) Apparently he never used a model for any of these bathers, (laughs) but he would use like, um, uh, old student studies, or he would, uh, you know, look at some allegory, uh, allegorical painting at the Louvre and then, use some of the studies from that, but he would never paint from a live person, but he would always give different excuses or answers. If people question, you know, did you use a model for these things? I really like that idea. (laughs) I I wonder why he didn't, because everybody did. Everybody did. And back then, like the, the female nude or a nude bathing uh, was eroticized it was a body that was to be objectified and it was sensual, whether it was a male or female, um, you know, we were uh, voyeuristic and watching them uh, bathing. And this had been a practice since the Renaissance. And what he was doing was actually de-eroticizing these bathers. Uh, did he mean not- to though? I think he did. Yeah. I really he did and I think a lot of artists got that because you see a lot of artists like Matisse loved him they would do Matisse even did a a bathers by the river and you can tell that he's looking at Cezanne's bathers because the colors are similar Mm -hmm. Picasso also um, does a couple of pieces that kind of remind me of these abstracted um, bathers and then um, I feel like we have de Kooning and we have uh, people like Lucian Freud uh, who also, uh, you know, has kind of like this grotesque in the way that they represent the body. But it really had me thinking too, like, well, what, what about women? And, you know, like, how are they, um, how do women uh, create work where they uh, question standards of beauty and the body? And, you know, you do have uh, painters like Jenny Seville, who, um, you know, who is painting kind of these distortions and um, forcing us to question our ideas of the body, which is, I think, really interesting. Or even like Micheline Thomas. And you know what I Mm. found? I found this really interesting um, story. I was looking at Micheline Thomas, who I actually talk about a lot in my painting class, because She's talking about about black women's bodies and she's adorning them with all these sparkles and jewels um, and sometimes titling them to reference art historical pieces that were made by men. Um, But she's about to have a really big show in Baltimore and the Baltimore Museum of Art is doing a very revolutionary thing uh, for 2020. And uh, they decided they are going to only collect women's art um, in 2020, and uh, they're only going to uh, show a series of 22 uh, exhibitions by uh, female artists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great because what they found about their own collection was that they had 95,000 works, uh, but only uh, 4% uh, collection uh, was by female artists. That's great. Uh, I I, wrote, I posted about this um, a couple weeks ago, whenever they announced this, and uh, people like the general reaction from people uh, where I po- I posted it on Facebook. The general reaction was that's great, but there were so many people that were like upset about it. 
mm-hmm. in that saying, you know, oh, great. So there's sexism. How do we fix sexism with more sexism? And it's like, okay, no, but <laughs> if they started right now gathering, like collecting 50-50 men and women, it, they would never even out. Yeah. Like it's yeah. such a disparity in so many collections. And uh, I, I think it's great. Like why not? And it, and it like puts focus on the fact that this should happen in more places. Definitely. I, th- I think it's, um, it's really interesting that they're doing this. Uh, in several articles that you read about uh, the Baltimore Museum of Art collecting only women's art in 2020, you'll find the same thing where uh, most people are very supportive, but there is a, a group of people who um, disagree um, about this route. Um, but I think I think what's really interesting about uh, Micheline Thomas's exhibition that's about to uh, open up, I think, oh, well, maybe it has already opened. Um, uh, it opened November 24th. It's going to stay till May of 2021. Is uh, Micheline decided uh, to make a, a, a more social practice piece as art? So in the museum lobby, uh, Micheline has invited eight other African-American artists to make works um, that the community can come in and be a part of. Like they can sit in the chairs. They can walk up to the bar. Mm. Uh, they can use that space. Uh, and Micheline believed that um, it's important as artists that we share our knowledge and we share access and we share our resources with each other. Um, and so I think that's that's such a positive message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's amazing. Her, her work is so great. And we, I have to go get my child from school. Oh, good. So okay. that means story time is over for today. Hey, well, that was good. That was fun. That was so good. There were so many good stories. And um, we're gonna, I'm going to have you back in the next rotation of co- uh, co-hosts. You guys are going to start again, and we're going to go through the list again. So get more stories. I know you've okay. got them. And then I was going to – we don't have time, but I have my book, um, Secret Lives of Great Artists by Elizabeth Lunday. And I love this book because it is just filled with gossip. There's affairs and, and fights and, um, Oh, here, I just flipped to another page and there's a duel with Manet. You see, this is what I need. This is what I need. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about the duel with Manet next time. Okay. Deal. Um, well, thank you so much. And, um, now all I can think about is snail mucus and urine Yay. Yay, Esther. That's a, <laughs> uh, no, that was so much fun and I'm sure everybody loved it. And, um, um, I can't wait to hear your next set of stories. Yay. Yay. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. That'll be fun. Yeah, it will. And so we'll loop back around in the new year and, uh, have an amazing time in Miami mm-hmm. and I will thank be you. following along on Instagram and whatnot. And, uh, and yeah, I'll talk to you in 2020. Okay, sounds good. Okay, talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay, I loved all of those stories, and I could have kept listening to her all day long. But motherhood was calling. It was actually snowing outside, and I could not leave my sweet boy standing outside of the school for too long. Right? Right. So, for today's project, I'm going to read the assignment that kicks off Esther's chapter in my book, A Big Important Art Book, Now with Women. It's all about, you guessed it, storytelling. Okay, here it is. Chapter two, tell a visual story. Every artist is a storyteller in some way. Bizarre, funny, dreamlike, heart-wrenching, these narratives run the gamut. So how do you get started? 
Step one, gather stories. From where? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. One, put a small notebook beside your bed, and the moment you wake up from a dream, write it down in glorious detail. The same goes for nightmares. You may need to buy more black paint in that situation. Two, if dreams don't stick around for you, dig into your personal memory bank. What was the story your crazy uncle told at every family gathering over and over and over again? You know, the tale that got a little taller with each telling? Write it down, exaggerated minutia and all. Be sure to describe colors, characters, and locations as well as your memory will allow. Feel free to take artistic license. Clearly that kind of thing runs in your family. Three, Okay, no eccentric storytellers in your family? <laughs> no problem. Think of the clearest memory from your past. Where were you? Who else was there? What time of year was it? What did it smell like? Again, write all of this in a notebook so that it's captured somewhere, allowing you to refer to it later if necessary. Step two, make something. <laughs> Tell this story using paint, pencil, collage, photograph, sculpture, anything you like. Use text or don't. Perhaps the title reveals the story, or just go with the always popular untitled. The key here to, is to simply share the story you captured in your notebook visually. Granted, once your work is complete, <clears throat> you might be the only one who knows or actually understands the narrative, which is perfectly fine too. You've created a mystery that the viewer is dying to solve. Okay, that was the project. So, have fun digging up your own stories. I know they're in there somewhere. To see all of the work and to get the links that Esther and I talked about, just pop over to my site, thejealouscurator.com, to see the full post. Thanks to Esther for taking the time to find all of those stories for us. I will never look at a snail the same way again. Big thanks to Thrive for supporting yet another episode, and of course, thank you for listening. I will be taking the rest of December to settle into the holiday season with my sweet little family, but I will be back on January 4th with more art for your ear. See you then. Thank you.